It's Monday, which means it's time for the weekend review with me, Adam Bolt, with the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Welcome back. Uh, Dave O'Brien. Hiya. And Ooh. the man, the myth, the legend himself, Chris Hennage. Hey, Dan. Welcome to the front three, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. In part one, as always, we'll be reviewing this weekend's Premier League action, including the North London derby, including... Manchester United, surprise, surprise, drawing at home once again. And of course, the final now in the coffin for Sunderland and potentially David Moyes. In part two, we'll be talking Julian Nagelsmann with the 29-year-old, the youngest manager in the Bundesliga, steering his side Hoffenheim to Champions League qualification before in part three previewing all this week's massive UEFA Champions League semi-finals action. All a very exciting stuff. I'm sure you'll agree. Um, we got to start there, Lawrence, with tonight's game. Uh, Watford nil, yeah. Liverpool won. First up, Emre Chan's winner for the Reds, Lawrence. Uh, goal of the season for you? Uh, certainly from a Liverpool perspective, it's goal of the season. I mean, uh, I think there's probably it, been some better team goals. I don't know. I'm thinking, you know, Giroud, of course, the, the famous scorpion kick that stood out. Maybe uh, Andy Carroll's bicycle kick as well. But is it Mkhitaryan's scorpion? Mm, not a fan of Mkhitaryan's myself. It was offside, wasn't it? It was offside for what, one. What a real goal, Lawrence. Um, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> but surely, Emery Chance... That's why they drew against Swansea. Emery Chance has got yeah, to be number one, hasn't I can't think of one that, that tops it. That was that was a spectacular goal. It was, it was a pretty good goal. I'll give him that. Um, pretty he's, good. He's been <laughs> rising back up. Well, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole goal is contrasted by a pretty, again, mediocre Liverpool performance. Um... You know, only just surviving against Watford, who went close very late. Uh, under pressure, Liverpool didn't seem to have great control of the game. Um, it, very sloppy in the first half. They played a fairly unbalanced midfield. Um, you know, obviously it's without Jordan Henderson and Coutinho went off. But still, yeah, they played Wijnaldum, Chan and Lucas, who have all done great, uh, who can all do great jobs for Liverpool. But when they do actually get out on the pitch, it doesn't it work it the way that you see it in paper, that in practicality it should work. Um, people are m- m- uh, lamenting why Moreno is not on the pitch for Liverpool right now, which is, I mean, it's interesting. Um, he's a, He was a good player at Sevilla, but I think it's probably time for him to move on. Um, and then uh, up front, I think Liverpool are again just struggling to break down anyone who doesn't play the way that Liverpool want them to play. And, you know, ultimately the same problems are popping up over and over again. Liverpool struggling against teams with big men who can boss that back line around. As much as Liverpool sort of signed Lovren to a new contract this week, £100,000 a week, uh, you know, and Klopp said it was very positive. And, I'm, you know, I've got, I think at the moment Liverpool fans have to have faith in Klopp or at least have to, you know, uh, get behind the project even if they don't have faith in him. Um, you'd say that uh, there are still the same issues and they need to be addressed. Um, but you know they battled through one 0 in the end, and that's got to be a positive. Thing. I mean, obviously, you seem somewhat underwhelmed by the season as a whole. For I'm, every week, I'm underwhelmed by but Liverpool. Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about the issues that need to be fixed. I mean, what do you think needs to be done in the summer then? Because I mean, it seems to be somewhat of a, a transitional season for Liverpool under Klopp. I mean, is it down to personnel who needs to? to to sell, who he needs to bring in to make them a, a stronger proposition next season? I mean, what does Klopp need to add to this team? 
I think that you're going to have the final uh, season where Klopp can say that he's still shaping this side because obviously Lucas is in there. I think they'd like to, as, as great a servant as he's been for Liverpool and as, as good as he is at moving around within the side and sort of playing a, a multitude of roles, whether that be a centre-back or in the midfield, you probably look to move him on. You may even look to move Milner on. Um, you may look to move one or two other people on as well. So, I mean, let's see. Um, you know, there's 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 some, there's some interesting shaping for him to do this season. Lucas now uh, has got three assists in his last five games. Uh, that's more than he had in his previous 163 appearances in the league combined. So, uh, pretty uh, special stuff. He's now got more assists than Pogba this season, Dave. Uh, Liverpool fans are keen to remind everyone on Twitter. Lol. <laughs> Lol, indeed. Um, let's talk about the North London derby, guys. Uh, seismic result in North London. Uh, Spurs winning 2-0 on the day, confirming that they will finish above their great rivals for the first time in 22 years. The first time since I was six years old. Um, pretty incredible stuff. Uh, I mean, in the end, Dave, Tottenham pretty comfortable, I think it's fair to say. Tactically, it was interesting that Wenger stuck with that back three that he's been using in the past few games, whereas Spurs seem to start with a back four, but yet seem to switch between systems, between that four and three-man defence at will, with that flexibility almost allowing them to, to dominate the game. Yeah, I think that's the, the flexibility is key. You know, Wenger, having switched to this 3-4-2-1 that's been getting the best out of like, the likes of Oxlade-Chamberlain, Kieran Gibbs at wing-back, you know, we saw how Chelsea, Alonso and Moses have been so crucial. But I think with this Tottenham team, like you're saying, it's so flexible. It can be a three, can be a four. It's all like when they've got the ball, what shape do they play? It's so interesting. You know, Eric Dyer dropping between the two Spurs centre-backs and looking like they're playing a back three, four bucks go on. The likes of Christian Eriksen dropping next to Wanyama in central midfield and playmaking. This Tottenham team just has, has so many different aspects to its attacking play this season. And it's fascinating that Spurs have done so well. You know, again, with the big managers coming in, everyone wrote Spurs off. Uh, being the guys that are going to pretty much finish second in the Premier League, and I think it's all credit to, to Spurs. But I think the question back to you, Adam, as a Spurs fan, are you uh, you just sort of not not afraid? But you know the, the news about Carl Walker potentially falling out of Pochettino on his way out, uh, maybe that will start to you know move some some thoughts in the likes of Deli Ali's head, Harry Kane's head. Do you think that Tottenham can keep all their best players and keep progressing how they have done over the last two seasons? I'm very confident that um, that we will be able to progress and I think next season is going to be crucial I think it, next season presents its own challenges in that of course now it's been confirmed that home games for Spurs will be played at Wembley which obviously brings its own challenges it looks like almost certainly we're going to be in the Champions League for a second consecutive season something that we didn't really manage particularly well in this campaign so I think it's going to be interesting balancing those potential issues in terms of keeping players I mean Yes, Carl Walker seems to have fallen out of favour in the last few weeks. The reports today in the Independent um, from Jack Pitbrook that suggests that, you know, Carl Walker sees his future away from the club now. The Porsche, you know, not only dropped him for the FA Cup, but for this game with Kieran Trippier sort of uh, becoming the first choice right back in a way. Porsche, you know, apparently has concerns over his fitness, um, concerns over his ability to play two games in a week. And I think of all the players that Spurs have, he is potentially the most expendable you know if you said to me who would you rather lose Carl Walker or Danny Rose I'd say Carl Walker obviously Deli Alley and Harry Kane are so vital to Spurs success in the past two seasons that for me if you do sell Carl Walker for what 40 50 million potentially you're going to get from Manchester City maybe even wow, Manchester United million for a full I think <laughs> I'm not saying that he's 
worth 50 million, but I think in this market, no, I know what you mean. Spurs mm. could definitely demand that and they could definitely get it. I think if we could use that to, to reinvest smartly in the squad, um, obviously in the summer we signed Victor Manyama, who I think has been superb, who was exceptional in the derby on, on Sunday. Less success with Musa Zoko, Vincent Janssen. If we can sort of eradicate those sort of... Uh, shortcomings in the transfer market and reinvest that sort of money smartly I don't see why next season we can't uh, you know we can't continue to improve and evolve under Pochettino because I think it's been absolutely tremendous what he's managed to do I think if you look at the combined table over the past two seasons now uh, Spurs are top of that and they're 15 points clear of Manchester City you know with a net spend in total of 7 million this season I think it's um it's massively impressive don't talk to me about spend talk to me about net spend fella um I think, I think it's also worth mentioning his 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 squad management is something that players early on have to buy into. I know Carl Walker was sort of a layover from previous, but still, um, he says you you, you know, this is in the documentary made about him. You um, you sign a contract with Spurs to train, not to play. And I think um, there have been a fair few players who have, have learned that if you even a, a tiny little bit go against what Pochettino needs then you won't be part of that group. Hmm. I think he's shown um, as well. I, I think that's in no uncertain terms. Yeah, I, I, I don't... It's a shame if Carl Walker does end up leaving and if indeed he go, does go to Manchester City as is being reported, that's where the interest is coming from. But I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a fatal blow to what Pochettino is building. I think Carl Walker can be replaced, especially, as I say, if the funds are so significant that it allows it not only to be spent on that position but elsewhere around the team. Um but I think you know this season is an important milestone. Finishing above Arsenal uh, for the first time in 22 years is is a feat. It's something that has never been achieved under Arsene Wenger. It's something now that has has you know turned the tide, as it were. I think that is an important marker of success. And I think next season, as we've said before on this podcast, is all going to be about silverware. Whether Tottenham can sustain a real challenge for the title next season with these issues that I've mentioned coming in. I think that's going to be the real test. And maybe, I don't think there's any danger that players like Ali, Kane, etc. will be leaving this summer. But next summer, I think those question marks will be more pronounced if you know Spurs don't win silverware, be it the league, be it a cup competition, or be it even progressing into the knockout stage of the Champions League, which in and of itself is a sign of progress. I mean, in terms of Arsenal, Chris, um, for me, it was, it was almost somewhat anticlimactic to, to finally have it confirmed on this game you know it's almost poetic in a way against Arsenal this is when it's confirmed we're finishing above them but in terms of the actual game I was surprised by the lack of fight from Arsenal you know to have this a game where Spurs finally overhaul them it was surprisingly comfortable you know the result was secure with half an hour left to play and the only real player who stood out or came away with any credit for Arsenal was Petr Cech who perhaps stopped it from being three or four nil I mean like it wasn't a challenge almost I know I know That's, I don't yeah, want exactly. to make it sound like a silly like a Salacious thing, but that's kind of what I feel like you're alluding to. Is that yeah? Fair? I mean, I would agree with Pochettino. It didn't that, feel like a derby almost. In exactly. That, in that. That's that's the thing. Respect. You know, obviously Spurs are looking ahead to to Chelsea. That's what the relay in the season finishing above them. It was almost. It was just strange. It almost felt like an afterthought. It felt like an anticlimax. This game in particular, being such a you know significant milestone for this club. Yeah, I think I think you look at the the Glasgow derby for comparison. That tackle that flew around from. Simeonovic or however you pronounce it there, there wasn't really that kind of moment it was the the commentators alluded to kind of passion and getting feisty and things like that but I didn't really think there was any of that stuff uh, present I thought Arsenal for the most part were pretty meek uh, I didn't really 
challenge too much. Didn't really know what they wanted to do either. And I think if you look at the actual game itself, and you talk about the intangibles, and I completely agree with with what you say, I, th- I think it really highlighted just the lack of adaptability and, and versatility in that Arsenal team, from from coach right down to players. They have very one set style of play, which is four two three one. And you look at this entire season, even if you go back, there was a brief period where they played four three three, but even then, it wasn't massively different to the four two three one that they were playing on Sunday. Whereas Pochettino has played 3-4-3, he's played 3-5-2. Even at points during that game, there was times where I looked at it and it looked like a back four, then a back three, then a back five towards the end when they wanted to, to really shut up shop. And, and I just think whether it's, it's right or wrong, the apathy that seems to sort of emulate or sort of give off from the players is possibly because of the fact that they have so few ideas. If they can't beat you the way that they know how, they can't adapt to try and do it a different way. It has to be this 4-2-3-1. It has to be very set in its its ways and the ways that they've established are working for them. Mm, I mean, like I said, I was surprised by the lack of fight, but not surprised now that Arsenal have only managed one win against the top six all season. Of course, that was a 3-0 against Chelsea early on in the campaign. Let me put this to you, Lawrence. Could this all be a positive for Arsenal in a way, this this underwhelming season finishing below Spurs for the first time in 22 years as I've said potentially now finishing outside the top four for the first time under Arsene Wenger is that sort of season going to be a catalyst to shock them into change I mean potentially next season without the Champions League which has proved to be an important factor now for you know what looks to be consecutive title winning sides could next season prove to be a transformative campaign for Arsenal or should we not have that much faith in Arsene Wenger I suppose you could take it a lot of different ways. Some sides, I mean, you know, it's not very often when a team has a poor season out of the Champions League that you go, it's because of their lack of Champions League football that these players aren't playing at the same level. Most people just seem to draw that equation um, because obviously it is less games, um, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think um, most people are also saying, which maybe will help Arsenal, but Arsenal now have worked themselves to a position financially where they don't even need the Champions League to be able to compete with the other teams in Europe. Now, I, I, I sort of question that because you think, well, you know, major profit is better than some profit for a lot of these clubs, especially when it comes to balancing the books and if they want to sort of build up a kitty. But if, if they can do that without the Champions League, then that would be fantastic. And again, that would partly be down to Wenger. Um, I, I think there's a lot of apathy around the club at the moment. Um, and it seems like the club looks to sustain hits sometimes uh, rather than... Or at least PR hits. Um, but surely ahead this is, of others. This is the one season now which is going to shake them out of the apathy for years now. You know, finishing their top four, winning the FA Cup, they've always had that almost to hide behind. Now there's no excuses. It's been the worst season under Arsene Wenger. Who are they? My, my my point is, who are they hiding from at this point? Though I mean, you know, I I, I think, you know, we do see a lot of people on, online chatting about this, and I think. Mm. It's slightly there. There are with Arsenal shades of Brexit, um, or it's sort of like this seems to matter. What I mean by that is this: this seems to matter a lot more to Twitter mm. than it does to a lot of other people. And it seems that Twitter make their big clever conclusions, and everyone else is supposed to go along with it. There are a lot of people who are still paying for their season ticket at Arsenal. Mm. Um, there are a lot of people who still go to the games week in week out, still follow the team. Um, there are a lot of people who uh, protest. Uh, um, 
but that is then spoken down to as a minority. Um, you know, I'm sort of wondering how much of this is propaganda or media speculation, which ends up um, selling more papers or sort of showing uh, people that they that they're well, that you know we we represent the fans. No, we represent the fans. No, we represent the fans. The one thing I do think could happen to Arsenal when you talk about financially and the fact that they're set up to still compete. And I don't mean this as a slight towards towards your club, Lawrence. I could see them falling into the same struggle totally. that Liverpool did. Yeah, where yeah, completely. They could, I mean, they just, can just compete being, and yeah, exactly. pay for the likes of Sanchez and Depay, but the player isn't that interested because of the, the perceived malaise and, and bubble that the club's stuck in. And I think if... I honestly think now, if they stay with Wenger as it is, I could definitely see them having some very harsh realisations when they come to talk to, to transfer targets in the summer because we well, saw I, a match of the day last night when it was, admittedly, it was a bit of a, a cheeky question from Mark Chapman, but saying to um, Wrighty and Danny Murphy, if you could sign for Spurs or Arsenal now, who would you choose? Provided everything's the same. And, you know, understandably, right, he couldn't really answer, but in saying nothing, he said a lot. And I could see a lot of players falling into into that, predicament and coming out with the same solution i think though chris that, that it's also worth saying something that goes completely the opposite way ozil and sanchez are both still very much at that club uh, and you know this is no sight on arsenal as a club but because of wenger because wenger puts his yeah yeah no good point because wenger puts his arm around a player knows how to look after players and knows how to make players feel in spe- special and important and those um but that's not doing them any good, though, at the minute, if you think about it. It's, it's no, that no, 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 Chris, but no. At Newcastle, it's great at doing that. But then what that also produced on the the darker side of things was that they developed a, a self-importance and a self-entitlement. And I think you could say it's the same happens now with, with Ozil and, and Sanchez. Uh, yeah, it's hard to deny, but at the same time, I think a lot of... Uh, yeah, at one time, there was... <laughs> he has helped the club into this position. Dave, which of these scenarios can you see coming true then? Do we see Arsenal potentially finish outside the top four this season? Next season, they've got the league to concentrate on. Wenger's sort of shocked into change almost. Or do you think, as sort of Chris is suggesting, it could be a very difficult summer for them if indeed Wenger stays attracting players. It could be uh, another difficult campaign next year. I think they do need to, to, to go out and, you know, when Wenger came to Arsenal, he was this revolutionary. He did bring a lot of great things to Arsenal. He's helped build the club up, but now it just doesn't seem the right fit. I think, like you were saying, that the question that Chris mentioned about Danny uh, Danny Murphy and Ian Wright, who would you rather play for? It would be Spurs every single day of the week. And I think that the problem with that is that the alternative is Arsene Wenger. Would you rather go to um, a club that's got a young manager, that's got a young squad, that's got a very progressive style of football, or Arsene Wenger, who seems to go more backward than forward at the moment? So I kind of think that to sell Arsenal, with the wages, with the club, with everything, you kind of need a new face to it. And I think that's kind of where we're going. You know, we, we've said this countless times, um, Wenger in, Wenger out, it, it's time to move on. And I think we're seeing from these games this season that he can't cut it at the top level anymore. When he's got to play someone like Jurgen Klopp that's going to press him out the back, he's got no solution. When he's going to go and play Pochettino and they're going to you know, absolutely bully them in central midfield and, and work the ball into promising positions, he's not going to do it. He can't break down Mourinho, can't break down Conte. You know, these things are, there's too many themes that are running here there's no there's no reason to keep Wenger apart from the, you know what he's done in the past and that potentially Ozil and Sanchez will stay at the club they're the you know it's the only thing whereas if you replace him progressive manager comes in you're kind of onto a winner 
it's interesting that you know we, we're talking about Wenger and uh, comparing him to Pochettino there almost Dave that Pochettino has clearly improved young players like Eric Dyer, like Harry Kane, like Deli Alley, whereas someone like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain seems to have stalled in his progress under uh, the Arsenal manager. I mean, even for players who are at the club, surely players like Oxlade-Chamberlain are going to be questioning their futures and thinking, you know, maybe I'm better off elsewhere next season. I think so, yeah. I think we've kind of seen some weird use of players like Alex Awobi, who has absolutely bags and bags of talent, can really be... Um, you know, a fantastic player for Arsenal. Start of the season, he was uh, in the side. Now he's just sitting on the bench. And it seems like another weird one from Wenger with Ramsey, with um, Chamberlain, that these players, you know, Ramsey's a lot older now. We expect a lot more from Ramsey. Are we getting that correct input? You see what Chris Coleman did at, did at the Euros. You know, it's this thing where when these players are playing for other managers, are they getting a better output? We're seeing Mesut Ozil when he plays for Germany under Joachim Lowe. You're getting, uh, getting some incredible output there. Sanchez under Sam Pauli. You see what I mean here? There's, there's these players that aren't performing at Arsenal go to their international stage and they really perform. Koscielny, mm. France, another great example. Zaka for Switzerland. Zaka for Switzerland is a different player to Zaka at Arsenal. And again, it's sort of the style of football and how Zaka would evolve in a different system. He'd be a better player in a more aggressive pressing system with, you know, where it's not just we're going to play this style of football and this is how we're going to do it. They're geared to tripping these, the, the opposition to play this pass and so then we'll move up. I think there's some real intelligent players in this Arsenal squad, but it feels like they aren't being intellectually challenged at the moment. And they, like we were saying, are sitting on this contract or at this club right now and they're waiting for the next thing. And I think it is kind of, it's got to be something the board have got to act on. And if they don't, they're still sitting in this, I know, building money and they're, you know, like Chris said, they'll fall into the Liverpool shop and that is a mm. big, big worry. Arsenal now six points adrift of fourth place, albeit with a game in hand. It's looking somewhat unlikely they are going to finish in the top four this season. Uh, elsewhere on Sunday. In the hat. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Favourite phrase of the podcast. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Elsewhere <laughs> um, on Sunday, uh, Chelsea being Everton 3-0 Lawrence. Um, surely. That's the title Imagine. done now. They've only got Middlesbrough, West Brom, Watford and Sunderland to face in their final four games. There's no way Good they're gosh. dropping five points from those games, surely. 
Um, oh, God. Well, I mean, you never know, do you? Um, Surely you do know. That's what I'm saying. Uh, no, yeah, maybe you do. I mean, later in the week, we're going to have a video coming out on <laughs> a burden. That, I mean, I'm, I'm not against saying, you know, a, a, a lion in the hand. But the, the point is, uh, I think uh, Conte is famous for being able to spur his players over the line. There's no play or irony in there. Um, later on in the week, we're going to have a video coming out on TF3's YouTube about uh, previous times at Juventus where he has expected um, he's expected certain things of his players and used very forceful um, and direct psychology to... Uh, shock them into going over the line, whether that be to get 100 points uh, in the season when he um, destroyed Buffon in front of the rest of the squad. It's a great story. Go to Tier 3 YouTube to hear it later in the week. Um, or whether that that be uh, telling a player for the international team that he has to be with the Italy squad the day after his wedding. Um, so I think there's he's it, it's classic Conte at this point, and it's almost as if he revels in this bit. It, and you know what? There's something really lovely about seeing him with the players and the fans after the game. And, you know, a, a lot of managers aren't very physical uh, with the players. There are certain managers now in the league who are, who are very much more publicly physical with the players. I love to see that, that uh, picture of Conte jumping on Courtois' back in front of the fans and just going crazy. It makes him look so small. I love to see it. I absolutely love it. And not only that, not only that. Was it, I mean, in the second half, you know, they scored three goals. Um, and the, you know, in, this was a side who, in the previous season, were so mentally frail um, that you know it was very different. And so it's great to see them where they are now, mm. especially uh, considering they spread the goals around and it wasn't just one of the players as normal dragging them over the line this time. No, it was impressive. I think many people expected them potentially this be to be the game where they would maybe drop points to uh, to keep the title race alive, as it were. Wasn't to be in the end. Uh, bird in the bush is... Uh... In many ways. Uh, Chris, what about Everton, though? Obviously, likely to finish seventh now. Um, you know, par for the course with the club having the seventh highest wage bill, as it were. Still struggling to ascend to that next level. Uh, you know, Coleman obviously joining Everton because he felt this was a project... Uh, that he felt rather than Southampton, he would be able to evolve, that he would be able to challenge that top six. The feeling is that this summer is going to be crucial if next season they are to put together a, a challenge that could see them break in, above that glass ceiling almost. I think you kind of alluded to the answer there in, in the question. The fact that this is seen as a project means that any potential uncertainty is heavily mitigated by that fact. So I think if it's the same sort of situation in 12 months, then maybe you start to panic because the money's been, I assume, spent at that point. The team is starting to look more like a Coleman team, less like a Martinez team. I'm going to presume in 12 months' time they've got a new goalkeeper or at least a, a few new goalkeepers and one that is a, a genuine number one because I don't think Joel Robles is, at least for a, a club with Everton's ambitions. Um, and so, yeah, that that's the thing. It, it It's a, a blow that I think is lessened significantly because of the timeline for Everton at the minute. Um, again, the, the difficulty there, and I think a lot of clubs face who aspire to be like them or in their position, is how do you buy those better players? Because they were linked to Depay, they've managed to pick up Schneiderlin, um, but again, Schneiderlin is someone that didn't work at Manchester United. So in that moment, you're taking a player that is 
for want of a better term, a cast-off from a top four team. You can't really keep shopping like that. In theory, you have to go out and buy the players that someone like a Tottenham or a Manchester United would want, but do it before <clears throat> they're, they're on their radar. And it's just very difficult. I, I, I don't envy the position they're in, but I think it'll be a, a significant summer of change for Everton for that reason alone. Hmm. Finally, on Sunday, Dave, Manchester United drawing at home once again, this time against Swansea. First off, uh, any thoughts on that disgraceful dive by uh, Marcus Rashford? I think, what, you mean Gabriel, the, the Gabriel Jesus dive? Obviously, as the political agenda machine of Dave O'Brien was on for Manchester United, we'll have to completely ignore the fact that Marcus Rashford definitely dived. And I thought, he, I, was, I was at the game at the weekend, and he definitely, I could, you could see it. Like I don't understand how the referee missed that. There was there was no contact. The keeper was nowhere near him, and he went down. But I think it it, it kind of hides the fact of um, you know certain players in the United team that are coming to the end of their career. They're coming to the end of their time at Manchester United. The likes of Wayne Rooney, the likes of Michael Carrick, both were absolutely you know atrocious. Wayne Rooney more than Michael Carrick. Carrick just did things too simple. Uh, played his teammates into the Swansea press a few too many times. Didn't play enough passes to the to the attackers in a way. Only find Anthony Martial on five occasions in the entire ninety minutes, which is it's pretty shocking for your deep line playmaker to you know find your attackers. You go back to the best United teams. Paul Scholes would just be constantly finding Ronaldo, finding Nani, and United would attack in that method. And I think it's. It's kind of a problem with Mourinho. It's a kind of problem with some of the players, and something that again is going to have to be addressed by by a window of um, spending X amount of money to sort of solve that uh, either problem at attacking midfield or central midfield. Mm. But I think the more interesting problem at United at the moment is the the games that are starting to pile up. Eric Bay in the first five minutes of the game honestly looked like he was knackered. He hadn't slept. It looked like he hadn't slept in two games. He could hardly like move his feet around the pitch. Obviously played sixty more, came off injured. But then United have got to play in the Europa League this Thursday, so it's starting mm. to stack up. Running out of defenders now, uh, essentially with a ridiculous number on the injury list. I mean, who is expected to line up in defence uh, against Celta Vigo this week? Honestly, I reckon Bay will be fit for for Celta Vigo because you know you kind of see with this Mourinho, you hear a lot of the the talk about Jones and Small and that they've declared themselves not fit. Mourinho thinks they're fit and all this type of stuff. And he wants someone to fight for him. Um, you know, he spoke about Juan Mata after the game. Juan Mata was on the bench and Mourinho was saying how incredible it was that he's ready to fight for him. He's on the bench already. He's already, you know, gone through a groin injury and then come back onto the bench. So it's an interesting one. But, you know, to Inzebi, who could have got the nod ahead of Darmian, um, again, Mourinho going with experience over youth. You can kind of understand it. I think someone pointed on uh, on Twitter, on the United Twitter, that potentially it was the correct decision to go with height. Um, in Matteo Darmian over Tuanzebi, I would have gone with Tuanzebi no matter what, because I think from what I've seen of Tuanzebi, he's a very, very, we could be a very, very, very good player for Manchester United. But it will be, I think it will just be Blinden Bayi on, on Thursday night. But I think, again, players like Wayne Rooney, like I've, I haven't seen him play that badly ever for Manchester United. It, wow. it looks like he's aged three years in two months. He's 31, isn't he? He was struggling to play simple passes, he was struggling to switch the play. It was atrocious. It was one of the worst displays I've ever seen in the United shirt. Obviously, Chris, as Dave said there, the, the injury list is piling up. As Mourinho said, at the moment, we can walk from the bed to the toilet and break a leg. Um, painting quite a picture there. Um, I mean, how much sympathy do you have? Is he, is he talking about having diarrhoea? I think so. It, it must be. It's right. the only way it makes sense. But how much sympathy, Chris, do you have? from Mourinho because uh, as he cites the, the the fixture pile up as the cause of that injury crisis as it were at the same time you know this is the most expensively assembled squad ever I believe should they yeah, not be able to do all that though did he of course not but fair, should though. should they not be able to cope with you know albeit a demanding fixture list a fixture list that teams have had to cope with in the past before 
can't imagine he would sign every player that's <clears throat> that's been signed. Um, Ooh, I think you the bitch. Tr- I, th- I think the truth sits in the middle in so mm. much as, yes, he should be doing much better. And actually, I think the likes of Twins AB, um and and youth products, if you will, should be more involved at a club like Manchester United. Because I think, aside from Mourinho's uh, reputation with, with youth and, and whether he actually does give players a chance, that is an academy that I think still has a, a fairly high standard coming out of it. Um, and I think he should be making more of that resource. When there are clubs like Everton giving Tom Davies a, a starting role and being able to integrate talent like that, I think Manchester United should be doing exactly the same. As for for you know the most expensive squad assembled, of course, Man United's recruitment's been terrible. They paid ninety million for Paul Pogba for goodness' sake. Um, I think they need to get smarter on that in general. But I also, as I say, think they need to start using the academy a bit more because at the minute, all these players like Twins ABR are just good highlight reels on YouTube. You're never really going to know what they're like until you throw them in and giving them 10 minutes when you 3 nil up does nothing for them. Here comes that Stephen Housen tweet. <laughs> 25 games unbeaten, though, for Manchester No, United. it's true. I've watched... I've watched tw- Am I saying that right, Dave? Tw- Twinsaby. Twinsaby. Yeah, Twinsaby. I've watched, I've watched a little bit. I've watched a few of his games for, for Man United and stuff like that just to see what the hype was about. He is a good player, but again, he's a good player against guys who were 23 and under at the minute. <clears throat> he's he's got to get that chance against some actual strikers, and I know Stephen in the past has has talked about how he likes the um, EFL trophy. Is that the one that Premier League squads put a youth team in? He liked he liked the thought of that for that reason that that you could put someone like uh, Tunzebi in against a, a veteran striker. But really, you've got to just put them in the first team. You've got to give them that chance and. I think that's one thing that Sir Alex did very well, actually, was was give people like John O'Shea, Darren Gibson, guys that, on the one hand, stayed for Manchester United a long time, and then those who didn't, um, equal opportunity to show what they were actually worth, and he put the faith in them. But I don't see Mourinho putting in people. I think the interesting part about, you know, to Inzebi from watching quite a bit of United reserves when I was in Manchester, um, was there to be players that stand out, like, like a sore thumb. Um, that you could see were definitely a lot better than their peers. And that's kind of the same thing with Tuinzebi, that he was miles ahead of the rest of the players. Obviously, it was against Tottenham's under-23s. Tottenham's under-23s are pretty decent. United's under-23s this season, from you know what Housen says about the squad, is that they're very you know there's not a lot of depth there in terms of attacking positions. But Tuinzebi was very, very good at coming out of the back, reading the play, being aggressive, and just impressed me, similar to how Lee Martin impressed me, Giuseppe Rossi, Gerard Piquet, Darren Fletcher, all these players in the past that you, you, you see and you're like, you know, he has something else. Similar to like Halilovic for Las Palmas against Atletico Madrid going on a massive tangent, he has something else. He has that patience and that timing that he's not worried on the ball. And I think that's similar to Tuinzebi in a defensive sense. He looks very good. And I, I agree, he definitely should have been given the minutes there. Damian, though, did all right when he was on the pitch. You know, I can't complain. But again, it's kind of Mourinho going with the safer option over going with the youth option. But similar to his attacking intent, United was so poor with the ball. There was a in the first half, Swansea played a diamond. United were going down the left hand side a lot. There was a two v one against Norton every single time against uh, you know with Ashley Young and Martial, who had very good games when they got the ball, but there wasn't enough ball to them. And I think that is something that is still there from Louis Van Gaal, but it's something that Mourinho hasn't corrected yet, and it's something that Mourinho will have to correct. To, for Mourinho to be United manager for more than three years, he is going to have to evolve his attacking play. His attacking play is outdated. 
it's outdated in a sense it doesn't have a style and that probably means that it'll be Lou Van Gaal's style of attacking which is a bad way of style it's a waste of waste of the ball in a way uh, he needs to go back and he needs to look at some good European sides like Hoffenheim who we'll speak about later on in terms of how they attack 25 games unbeaten though for Manchester United uh, albeit 12 of them draws I believe um, Dorchester United Dorchester United they've indeed. drawn they've drawn 10 at Old Trafford this season Howie. Um leaves them fifth now um, Manchester City in pole position to, to finish third they're on 66 in fourth place at the moment after their two all draw at Middlesbrough um, as I say in place to finish third Lawrence if they do indeed win their final four games and Guardiola you feel like he needs a strong finish to the season now yeah it would really help especially um, g- considering some of the weird results that have happened this season I think showing that you can motivate this team and bring them together um, would definitely help for the Man City fans. I don't know how diff- I don't know how much of a difference it's going to make to the players they're going to attract over the summer. To be honest, uh, I think they've probably already got those laid out. They probably don't know who they want to go for, and they probably already feel fairly confident about who they're going to attract. Um, I, I mean, yeah, it, it totally depends on the kind of manager that he is. Um, and if I'm completely honest, I don't know. Um, what what Pep's motivational skills are like when it comes to this kind of team. Um, you know, in previous years, it's been that he's had an institution behind him. And mm. sometimes that institution is very good at putting the seal on the previous season. Um, you know, at Barca, they had a very specific approach. And, you know, imagine that wasn't just Pep that sort of instilled that in the side. And um, then at Bayern, uh, they're very used to change. It's a culture of change. You know, it's not one where they have... Um, you know, in season in season out, you know, it's it's not about the same things that maybe you'd imagine it would be at a smaller club. So let's see what he's trying to bring in at uh, Man City. I wonder if he can instill some of what he's learned from previous clubs. That's an interesting point Lawrence makes, isn't it, Dave? Because there is this prevailing opinion that once Guardiola gets another summer under his belt, once he brings in the players that he needs to bring in, results are going to turn around and we're going to see what Guardiola can do. At Manchester City, but surely that presents his own challenges. You know, new players coming in who need to adapt to Guardiola's methods, which Vincent Company himself said this week the current players at the squad are still yet to adjust to. And there's no guarantee that those players will fit the bill, essentially, because Manchester City's transfer policy, as we know over previous seasons, has been incredibly flawed. With uh, Cheeky Bagiristein, I believe it's pronounced, and Co. Obviously, uh, supplying a somewhat underwhelming squad uh, at the club. I mean, uh, how do you see next season going for Guardiola in terms of the challenges that he's going to face? I think one of the biggest problems is that we've seen how tactically behind the Premier League is. You know, it's taken this long to even get anywhere near where Pep Guardiola wants to do in a tactical sense. I think it shows it's shown in European competition recently that the progressive teams, the teams that are playing zonal with and without the ball, that are moving the ball quickly, that are flexible in their systems and their, their you know their, their tactics, are the teams that are winning the Champions League. And we are seeing in the Premier League that this isn't happening. City are unable to switch their tactics when Guardiola needs them to switch. It seems like they they have a lot of old heads in there, but that one is the, isn't just Guardiola's fault. That's the signings that were made before, and the you know the management of the squad. Yes, Pellegrini got to the Champions League semi final last season. That was pretty much because they had the players at the right age. They played the correct way, and that you know credit to Pellegrini. But you know Pellegrini's style of football is one way. Pep Guardiola's is the evolved form of football, and it's this thing and this tactical idea that some of these players that have 
played in the Premier League and they've, you know, they've won titles at Manchester City in, um, in, a, in a time where the Premier League wasn't very dominant in Europe. Um, and I think it's something that we need to look at and understand that, in fact, Pep Guardiola is doing it right. He needs time. Next season will be completely different. He'll have, you know, uh, the players will start to understand his methods. But that is, again, is the problem of England and how tactically they've been behind Europe for the last five seasons. And it's a, more a reflection on the league than a reflection on Pep Guardiola. Because, you know, whatever people say, Pep Guardiola is one of the best coaches in world football. Lakeith voted him, voted him number one. Just feels like that episode of The Simpsons where Skinner's like, is it me who's out of touch, Seymour? No, it's the children. It's the children who are out of touch. <laughs> it, it, there, is, there is an interesting side to it, I guess, that, um, you know, we, we spoke to a lot of Italian journalists recently and say they really laugh at the English because, um, they, well, I mean, first of all, the Italians uh, consider themselves to be tactically much more astute than English they consider themselves to have a much more sort of almost integrated idea of what tactics are so they have a much better idea of the way that people play them um, and that sort of um, as much as you see the terrible TV that sometimes the uh, Italian football can turn out and there is a lot of interesting tactical analysis that goes on there as well even if it uh, is quite rudimental rudimentary in a graphic sense uh, people apparently laugh at the Brits when they go crazy over Conte or crazy over Pep Guardiola um, and I don't know if it's maybe also just a sense of inertia that happens in the Premier League that it, it, there does seem to be a bit of an arrogance about the way that the whole league approaches uh, tactics um, I'd also wonder though uh, is there something about zonal marking that doesn't work in the Premier League or is it just that it, every time it seems to be really poorly implemented I think it, it's, it's a flip isn't it it's dealing with the transition I think that's the biggest thing it's not when City have the ball, City have the ball, they're fantastic. It's when teams turn it over and how City react to that. And it's something that, you know, the players and, and Guardiola may need to slightly tweak and adjust. But again, it's it's to do with the, the speed of of making it back uh, in a defensive sense. I don't think the way that City's only press it has been interesting. You know, Nico Morales is probably the perfect guy to talk about how City's press has moved on. But it has gone being from full gun uh, aggressive to now being at the right time. But still, it's it's when teams catch City out in this transition that they they don't really react well to, and it is difficult playing centre half in a in a, in a team that has the ball when they're, they're defending. But again, it's it's sort of moving on and, and looking at someone like Diego Simeone at Atletico who have been looking really really good in the last few weeks, and they look so strong with them without the ball when they've got the ball in the opposition's half. They have a lot of attackers, but then again, you know that they're going to be structurally strong, and it could be about Guardiola adopting something. You know, we've seen him play this three. Uh, the sorry, the four-two-three-one recently with two defensive midfielders. That again is giving their their centre backs a little bit more protection. And if he can maybe use that next season with some more more mobile, you know, central midfielders, maybe they'll be able to deal with the, the the attack. But I don't think it's I don't think it's one concept these players are getting. I think it's that they have to deal with a lot of concepts now. You know, possession de Fuego, that isn't it. That's with the ball. That's not uh, you know an easy thing to to think about and to to grab if you haven't played that through your entire career. Then moving on to how they defend, that's a completely different concept. There's a lot of concepts. And like we're saying, coaches need to be given more time. What, how long has it taken Yardim to get a Monaco team to score three goals a game? Three years. Managers need time. Like Jurgen Klopp needs time. You know, he needs transfer windows. He needs to find the right ingredients to, to, to make the team. Um, so it's one of these things where, again, our media is going to be very, very aggressive towards Pep Guardiola and aggressive to him failing and, and so forth. But it is about trying to give these coaches time. And it's, it's the responsibility of the football clubs at the end of the day. It's the responsibility of Liverpool. It's the responsibility of, of Manchester City. 
So it, I do think move on. sometimes though, sometimes though it is, it is uh, wrongly put on the manager when actually you're right, Dave, it probably is the club that should be taking responsibility for some of the, mm. the issues that uh, Guardiola is going through. And actually, can't... yeah, I think, I think Man City didn't, haven't, you know, have, have basically pinned a lot of their future on Pep Guardiola right now. I think one of the biggest problems for Manchester City, again, it's it's simple. It's because they've got two number 10s, difficult to be who we're going to build our team around. Signing Kevin De Bruyne for Manchester City when they knew that Pep Guardiola or they wanted Pep Guardiola at the club seems just like a crazy bit of business. Yeah. A lot of money for a player that's supreme on the counter-attack, that's supreme at, at working space to the left and to the right of, of centre-back, supreme at getting putting th- balls into the box against a, a defence that's not organised. Disorganised defence, Kevin De Bruyne is insane. Like, it, that signing for me, although it makes sense as I would want to buy him, it doesn't fit the philosophy of where the club's going. If they're doing the rondons at the under-7 level, why are they buying Kevin De Bruyne? Kevin De Bruyne should in fact be playing at Manchester United. In a, in a counter-attacking Mourinho team, but United didn't have a clue what they were doing because they had Louis van Gaal, then Mourinho. That is the problem right now at the club. Is they've gone from one polar to the other polar. And it's just like, who, who's planning it? Who's making these plans? Oh, no, wait, it's fine. We'll just buy Paul Pogba, who we let go a few seasons ago for 89 million. You know, it's, like Chris is saying, it's not thinking about things. And that's the problem at these football clubs, that they are driven by profit and they're driven by this. Mm. But actually, what would be more profitable is to think constructively in a footballing manner of how we want to move the club for the next 10 years. Do these clubs have, like, 10-year plans of who they're going to bring in as the next coach? Is it going to be Thomas Tufel for City? Is it then going to be Nagelsmann? They probably don't, haven't even thought about that. They haven't thought about what they're going to have for breakfast next week. <laughs> Summing up the uh, short-termism. In, in the thinking of most clubs, there, Dave, uh, rather eloquently. In the well, I mean, there are also there, well. there is there is something to be said for the fact that um, I mean, we we relate politics a lot to the the fo- uh, football on this show, but I do think there is something to be said for the way that uh, sports is covered in different countries does seem to be reflected uh, or reflective of the politics, um, and you can find that in different sports there are different approaches. I'm not saying that's always a political thing, but there is some interesting stuff going on at the moment with um, the analysis of different coaches in the NBA and how long they've been able to build some of their dynasties and work through either um, a lot of change and, you know, um, building the spine of a side, then changing players around that. Um, and it, it's it's worth looking at a lot of the NBA models and how they've, you know, maybe San Antonio Spurs kept a lot of their big guys. They kept him Duncan, they kept Manu Ginobili, they kept Parker. And now they've managed to transition to the next generation of players, which is like Kawhi Leonard or whoever. Uh, anyway, the, the point with that is they've kept those guys for a very long time and they can rotate a lot of people around that. It made them very flexible clubs. I think a lot of people are mixing the the ideology of a manager, which inherently will be maybe three maybe four a maximum of five seasons now with the whole identity of a club which is something you could do 20 years ago under someone like Sir Alex or Arsene Wenger and it's not making the club flexible enough and I just wonder how these big institutions are supposed to be more flexible within the Premier League and the UEFA Champions League era and whether that's possible and which clubs are doing it well and very few of them you'd argue are doing it well maybe weirdly Juventus's um relegation a few seasons ago was the wake-up call that they needed to, to get to the point they are now. I think as well with that, it's like, don't let the manager set the, the philosophy of the club. The club needs to set the philosophy of the club. And then you move on and it kind of sees that it kind of it appears from the front from not looking in that Premier League clubs at the moment, they're waiting for a manager to make the club. They're not making their own club, especially at the top. Apart from maybe, maybe Spurs, but then if Pochettino went, is that gone, Adam? You know what I mean? It's It's one of these things where it's seems very lazy 
it, uh, Adam, if Pochettino goes, come on. Yeah, I think Spurs would be in league. <laughs> Not relegated, but yeah, obviously it would be uh, it'd be a massive blow to Spurs. More than any player, as we were saying earlier, Pochettino has completely transformed the club. I think it's a very interesting debate about uh, the short-termism in most clubs at a high level uh, from the executive level, how they're sort of approaching their, their strategy almost running the club. And I think Dave's right. You need to have a philosophy for the club rather than relying on the manager to be the one who's going to install that and uh, be reliant upon that. Because you need to be flexible. You need to be able to adapt when changes occur. Um, but speaking of which, we need to talk about Sunderland, Chris. Um, their relegation was confirmed this weekend, a 1-0 defeat to Bournemouth, the final now in the coffin for Sunderland, potentially as well for David Moyes. Feels like this one's been a long time coming, Chris, and I'm not only talking about this season. No, it's, <clears throat> it's yours in the making this. Um, it's a lot of field revolutions getting caught up on each other. Just look at the squad and, and it's it's a wonderful lead-off in, in, in many ways because the lack of identity, I think, is the problem. They've suddenly put too much faith in trying to find a manager that would give them this this ethos and this style that would transcend everything. And the problem is everyone that they picked wasn't really either ready for that or didn't do that naturally. So it, it never really worked for them. Um, they'll go down after 10 years consecutively in the Premier League. Um, I saw someone put it quite nicely when they said that it's, it's a little bit fitting because a black cat has nine lives and, and Sunderland failed on the 10th attempt because... They have definitely rode their luck, I think, in, in the Premier League. And the the concern I have for them now is they're not very well placed, I think, to make the transition into the Championship and then try and come back up. You've got to remember, there's only two teams now in the last five years that have been able to, to come up at the first um, time of asking. And it's it's really not as easy as people think um, because you, you have a lot of instability you have a lot of new players you have to bet in, all these moving parts that make things difficult. And the concern I have now is that actually if Sunderland sell their best players or their sellable assets, they're going to be left with, with really no one. They're not going to make anything on Jermaine Defoe because he has a release clause um, for relegation. They have Jordan Pickford who might make 15 to 20 million. Kone will probably make about half of what Everton were offering last summer. And just overall, it's not a pretty situation. They do need to massively clear the decks and just decide what they want to be as a football club because I think for too long, they've they've flitted between very different and jarring styles when it comes to, to management and, and recruitment. It's interesting. I mean, we were just talking about how much blame a club should take almost for the foundations they lay for their managers. And while clearly the Black Cats have been run poorly for a number of years now, David Moyes is also responsible uh, his methods certainly have felt outdated you know earlier this year he claimed uh, teams don't win things with a back free I mean he doesn't exactly compare favorably to say Marco Silva who with a limited transfer budget himself seems to have been able to turn Hull around and save them from relegation yeah I, there are some people who have said that you know Moy should be given time and that eventually he'll find the, the solution I'm not convinced personally um, I, I don't think he is very forward thinking as a coach. I think he's got one style of play, which I don't think works very well in the modern game to begin with. And just in terms of him being a, a sort of statesman for a club, I don't think he's really very good at that either. He's, he said some truly 
baffling things this season about, well, anyone that we sign in January won't be quality because that's just the way the market is. You know, um, very damning things about the players when really they all needed to band together as a, as a group. And, and honestly, if I was a Sunderland fan, I don't think I'd want him as, as coach at my club. One of the things, and, and I know Sunderland fans don't like being compared to their great rivals, one of the things that struck me about this season for Newcastle was when things got a little bit tough early on, when they lost to Fulham, when they lost to Huddersfield, they were all able to fall back on the fact that this is a plan, this is a season, and we believe in the coach at the front of things. Unanimously, they did. And I don't see that with Sunderland right now. I see a, a lot of fracture, actually, and a lot of divided opinion. And I just think if you were to get Moyes in, and it did start to go just a little bit pear-shaped early on, couple of losses, maybe it takes a few games for the first win and the, the players to bet in. I think he'd massively push the club under the bus and try and save his own skin. Because I think if I'm very candid about it, I think he's been doing that this entire season. From the minute things started to go wrong, he was talking about how if he'd known the financial situation was as bad as it was, he probably wouldn't take the job. Things like that. It's like, look, you don't need to say that in public. Keep it to yourself. Mm, that's the thing, isn't it, Dave? I mean, what is next for David Moyes? Because on one hand, uh, you almost have to feel a degree of sympathy for a man whose fall from grace has been so dizzying. But at the same time, as Chris mentions, he hasn't exactly helped himself. I mean, the fact is he's a manager low on confidence, low on ideas. Where can he go from here? I don't think he can go anywhere. I think that's it for him. I think he showed, uh, you know, his spell at Manchester United, his spell at Sociedad and his spell at Sunderland that his methods have become outdated. It's one of these things we keep mentioning. Similar to Mourinho, how his attacking methods have come outdated. David Moyes' full methods of a, of a club have just become outdated. And he hasn't evolved himself, and that's the worst thing. He's got one style of play, like Chris mentioned, and it's a, it's not an attractive style of play. It's not a, you know, it just doesn't fit into the game right now. And you're seeing the likes of Big Sam and, uh, you know, Tony Pulis, who have, again, moulded themselves and, and stepped on their laurels, but also moved themselves on as managers, you know, gone into different styles of football slightly, working things slightly different. You don't see that with David Moyes. He's still in the same the same dogged approach. Um, and with this Sunderland team, they are absolutely atrocious. But again, you've got to look at the manager. Um, but it is, it's the club. And for David Moyes, it, it's kind of it. It's the end game for me. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't even hire him at championship level. Wow, a damning indictment. <laughs> By Dave, there uh, maybe a life of punditry. Uh, I can see him on match of the day potentially. Yeah, that's going to be the next bit. Yeah, more, 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 more ex uh, pros. <laughs> that's what we need. Analysis is always right. I'm not saying that he should, but I'm saying that he could. You know, it's a good point, Adam. Yeah, very often we say what we, what we should or could. Very what's good the What's the bit from Jurassic Park? You know, you spent so long thinking about whether they could do it. You didn't think about whether you should do it. You're going to say Mother Nature always finds a way. It does always find a way. David Moyes always finds a way. Let's move on to part two, guys. Let's talk about Julian Nagelsmann. So, Dave, let's talk the Bundesliga. No, not the newly crowned champions Bayern Munich, who won their fifth consecutive title this weekend. Well done to them. We are talking the league's youngest manager, Julian Nagelsmann, with it confirmed this weekend that the 29-year-old has steered his side, Hoffenheim, to a place in the Champions League qualifiers, with the chance now for the club to make their first appearance in the group stages of Europe's premier competition. Uh, the game against Dortmund next weekend set to decide who out of the two will secure automatic qualification, of course. I mean, overall, Dave, having taken over last season and having saved Hoffenheim from relegation, this has been a remarkable campaign for Nagelsmann. 
It really has. It's been pretty incredible to to do what he's done with with the team and and what he had before and and the players that he's he's worked with and the players he's brought through. It's been absolutely incredible. You know, you mentioned the the record uh, since he took over as boss. Only uh, you know Dortmund and Bayern have won more points in the Bundesliga. He picked them up on you know in 16th position and now they are third in the Bundesliga. And like you said, the big game next weekend will decide whether they get the automatic spot pretty much in the Bundesliga with our RB Leipzig ahead of them um, by about five points. So it's just basically. Dortmund versus Hoffenheim to decide who goes in as the automatic. It's going to be really interesting, though. I think the thing with next season, it's it's how he moves the side on again, uh, which players he brings through the academy again. He was at the the Hoffenheim under-19s and won, won titles with, with that side. So he knows a lot of the young players. And I think that'll be really interesting to see how he integrates the the 16-year-olds, the 17-year-olds right now into this squad. But in terms of playing style, it, it's some of the best football that you're going to watch in Europe. Hmm. I mean, he gave an interesting quote earlier this season. He's talking about how coaching is 30% tactics, 70% social competence is how he put it. I mean, starting with that 30%, Dave, I mean, what is his sort of tactical philosophy? How has he sort of transformed his side this season? Well, I think the big thing for Germany, um, you know, the the trends in Germany over the last you know, you'd say five years has been pretty much a you know pressing four-two-three-one. Um, with the likes of Pep Guardiola coming to the league, there's different thinking. And back threes have emerged. You've seen Eintracht Frankfurt, who Hoffenheim played this weekend, playing a three-four-three. Hoffenheim this season, but it pretty much played a three-five-two. But it's a very fluid um, and pressing three-five-two, where at times it almost would look like a three-three-four with uh, the two wing-backs, uh, usually Zuba and Kadabra, getting very very far forward and and providing that overlap. But it, it's that. So a concept uh, of n- the new age of football in a way where everything is hyper flexible, hyper fluid in the final third. The really interesting uh, move that they pull sometimes is when they're either the defensive midfielder, Rudy, or someone like Nicholas Schuler, who's going to Bayern Munich. He's had a fantastic season. Basically, the central midfielders split when those guys have the ball, which again, if you're an opposition team and you've just seen the opposition's two midfielders have moved from a central area out wide, what do you do? And I think that's the thing with this Hoffenheim team is it asks you questions that you haven't been answered before. If you track these guys, you know, if you track Dimabai and uh, Arabi out wide, you open up massive space with the usual move, which is Kramerich to receive the ball to feet. It's this new thing in football that's a direct pass, a flat pass out of the back to a, a striker or an attacking midfielder that's dropped towards, usually dragged someone behind him with him, a little layoff and then another pass from the pivot, which would be Ruddy or the centre-back, that gets you into the in-between the lines and opens up massive space to attack. And I think that's the, the concept at the moment that's going around, is getting in between the lines and, and finding those moments where you can run at the opposition's back four or you can slide a free pass. And that's what this Hoffenheim team does so well. It either gets to a position where it can play one of the strikers through or it can play one of the wing-backs through to cross. And it's kind of so flexible and so fluid and so beautiful to watch. At times, they look like a 3-6-1 with the back three, the defensive midfielder, then the front six players kind of do what they want. In terms of flex, it's not they do what they want. They they do things in a zonal way that's very, very controlled and you don't understand that it's that controlled. But it almost looks like they're giving this this full, full freedom. But actually what they're doing is they are working on this zonal pattern of play that Hoffenheim have uh, developed where one player will move up, one player will move horizontal and it's all together. And it's this fluid organism that football is transitioning to this place. And it's interesting that he's done it with a 3-5-2 instead of doing it at a back four system that makes it almost so impressive. And he's going massively against the trend in Germany doing that. But again, Germany, a very proactive um, you know, coaching philosophy and the, the DFL do cracking work over there. So he's kind of their first star that's come out after their big, big change where they really switch their focus on to developing top-class young coaches. Hmm. I mean, 
in terms of aside from the tactics the the social competence as he puts it i mean he's spoken about dealing with uh, the squad as individuals motivating each one individually and by all accounts his clever man management this season means he's got the most out of his entire squad you know a lot's been made of his dealing with reserves and treating them as he would first team players almost I think we've seen some big impacts off the bench and, um, you know, from some of the players. But again, I think it's like getting the best out of players that have talent. Like Kramaric, who went to Leicester City uh, from, I think it was Dynamo Zagreb, who scored a hatful of goals over at Dynamo Zagreb, but unfortunately fell into a Leicester City team that was in banging form, went on to the Premier League. He's been the star man for them this season and the management of him has been absolutely fantastic. You know, building him back up, building his confidence. After having like Sandra, uh, Sandro Wagner being a sort of star goal scorer and being their main man, a bit of old school target man slash defensive board works very, very hard. But Kramaric is sort of the, the star, the shining light, you know, 12 goals and, and eight assists in the Bundesliga this season. Again, a player that was tossed by one of the Premier League sides that's now been a key component in getting to the top three in the Bundesliga. It's that I think it's that management style bringing the best out of them. You've seen players like Demir Bay who signed from you know lower league in, in Germany that's now one of their stars. And I think it's that coaching. I think that's the big thing here. It's all about coaching players and, and managing them at the same time, as you mentioned. I mean, in a broader sense, what can we expect from Hoffenheim next season? Because there's almost been a lot of soul-searching with Bayern Munich winning their fifth consecutive title about the competitiveness of the league. I mean, we have seen Leipzig surprise many this season, put together uh, a title challenge, as it were. Do you think maybe next season, if Dortmund potentially recover from what has been essentially an underwhelming season, we can see more of a title race in the Bundesliga next year? Um, I do and I don't. I see the likes of Leipzig be the guys that are going to challenge um, Munich. The problem with this Hoffenheim team is they will be playing Champions League football and they're losing their two best players. You know, Schuller and Rudy going both going to Bayern Munich. They've been so pivotal in this system. And again, it's going to be who comes through the youth team or who's signed to play two pivotal roles. That number six role uh, that Rudy plays, he plays arguably the best in the Bundesliga, you know, ahead of the likes of Xabi Alonso, ahead of Thiago, of how he controls his side, how he plays those forward passes, how he's very uh, positive on the ball, but as well keeping the ball and, and tactically very, very diverse in a defensive sense. So it's going to be replacing him. Who comes in? It's going to it's going to be a really interesting. But also Nicolas Schuler, who's been the standout centre-back, but not at, uh, obviously, Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga. So good at finding those passes. And without those two elements, it's going to be another big, big... Uh, it's going to be a real big test for Julius Nagelsmann to, to get them back up to that competitiveness. In terms of Dortmund, again, a young squad, if they can keep their stars. I think it's going to be really interesting with Dortmund over the next few years. If they keep Aubameyang and they keep Royce to see what those two players, as the oldest elder statesmen of the squad, can help these younger stars, the likes of Dembele, Emre Moore, uh, Pulisic, all the you know all these young attacking talent that they've got coming through, if, it, if they can sort of knit this, this together and uh, Tufel can make a unit. But defensively is where Thomas Tufel needs to work on his stuff, either it's signings or it's adapting his style of play to, to, to manage someone like Dortmund at Mainz. It's, it's fine when you are getting Europa League football week in, week out. Um, you know, you're losing games, you're winning games, but... At Dortmund, there needs to be a better defensive scheme. So again, he needs to evolve. But Nagelsmann, if there's any guy that can, you know, bring players in and turn them from unknowns to superstars, he's the guy, and he knows the youth team. And I think that's going to be a massive asset in terms. And of course, they've got money. The big thing we forget is that they are quite, you know, they're not a poor side. You know, they've they've only been in the Bundesliga for a, you know, maybe like five seasons now. It just seems like a short amount of time. Cause I'm getting old, but again. <laughs> their transition they're backed by a big wealthy I can't really think he works in electronics or something the guy that owns them um, but it, it, it's they have the money they have the good youth team as well the youth set up below so it could be a really really interesting Bundesliga season on 
on you know on those four sides we mentioned. Of course, there's going to be some unknowns coming out like Werder Bremen, who for somehow have slipped into sixth position after being absolutely rubbish in the, the first half of the season. Uh, any other interesting business from around Europe this weekend, Lawrence or Chris? Anything you noticed? I did notice that it is uh, the twelfth year anniversary today of uh, Lionel Messi's first ever goal for Barcelona. Barcelona are obviously making a big deal out of that one, as Aww. they tend to anything to do with Messi on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> can you name, Lawrence, uh, who he scored against in his first game and who set him up? Who provided the assist? Ooh, good question. Have a uh, stab. Lionel Messi's first... How many years ago was it now? This was the year 2005, when he was just 17 years old. 2005? Um, who got the assist? It's gonna, Have a guess. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, I know who got the Ronaldinho. Ah, oh, very good, very good. It was indeed. Uh, um, I can't remember who. I can't remember who it was against though. Albacete. I don't who it was against. I'd oh. be very surprised if you got that one. To be fair. Oh, I was, I was yeah, I was going to say, say Sociedad playing the same colours. Uh, well, you'd have been wrong. Been yeah, twelve years ago today, and now I think he's on. Ronaldinho. What's he on now? Five hundred and two, I think. No. So uh, incredible stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, mate, uh, have you noticed he started the new trend now at Barcelona where they all hold out the shirts? I love that. I think that's, uh, I like that. I like that a lot. I think yeah. that's, that's one of his best celebrations as well, surely. It was. Well, it's, it's, it's up there with sort of an iconic celebration, isn't it? Oh, so good. Loved it. I wonder uh, if FIFA's going to recreate that next season for FIFA 18. They better. They better. Um, also, at the same time, there's sort of sad news coming out of Italy that um, people who will be um, lovers of Sully Montari's career, um, will hear that he had to walk off the pitch in Pescara's game on the weekend because of racial abuse. But as he walked off the pitch, he did go over to the young child who was abusing him. And he wasn't joking when he said it was a young kid and gave the child that was abusing him his shirt and said that he wanted to set an example. Um, the disappointing side of it was, even more so, um, was that the referee chose to book him for complaining that he was being racially abused. So he walked off the pitch in protest, that's right? In protest, yeah, he, he protested and uh, and t- said if the referee, um, I'm paraphrasing that, but basically if the referee didn't end the game, then he didn't really want to take part in it at that point. And I, you know what? I, I stand behind of that. I would have no problem with watching players walk off the pitch oh, no. um, if they were racially abused. That's a big gesture as well, to walk straight over to that kid and give him the shirt as a sort of a... He said he didn't want him to grow up and be um, and be uh, something along the lines of he didn't want, want him to grow up and be part of the problem in the same way that he felt he was at that time. Uh, and, he, I, you know, basically he said that his parents or guardians were standing nearby and that he was disappointed. So um, Beautiful gesture. It's actually really, it's, it's actually, it's actually very, very intelligent and well-spoken out quite. I think it's translated from Italian, uh, but it's well translated uh, and it sort of puts very eloquently the way that a lot of people should be looking at um, dealing with racism at the moment. So, yeah. It's hard not to love Sudimentari, isn't it? Um, let's move on to part three. Yeah, although they do say he's 32. So, um, oh, is he? You know, he's not. He's been 32 for about five years, hasn't he? Anyway, <laughs> let's move on to the uh, Champions League semi-final preview. Very exciting games this week. Uh, first up, the Madrid derby. Real Madrid versus Atletico Madrid, Dave. No Gareth Bale for Real Madrid. Um, Isco potentially going to start in his place, who's uh, who's had a fantastic season when he has featured. For Atletico, they've lost Jose Jimenez, their, their makeshift right back at the weekend. So it'll be interesting to see how Simeone sets up his team to cover that side of the pitch with uh, Marcello in sparkling form himself. 
Marcelo, um, by some analysts and pundits, has been called the player of the season. You, uh, mainly. Yep. By others, it's Lionel Messi. But anyway, we'll move on from that minor point. In terms of um, Jose Jimenez, I, I, that's an unknown fact. I thought it was... I knew Juan Fran and um, the other fullback, whose name completely escapes me right now, is both injured the right fullback. Jose Jimenez did come in, uh, played very, very well at the weekend against Las Palmas. Defensively, was very, very solid. Allowed the likes of uh, Luis to get forward on the other side. Uh, but Partey came on, uh, Thomas Partey, who's a bit of a, plays anywhere for them, bit of a utility man, played central midfield, played attacking midfield, defensive midfield, right midfield, left midfield, and now he's played right back and was pretty good at left back, made a pretty big big impact, um, grabbed a goal, uh, I think he grabbed an assist as well, but I think more importantly for Atletico is is how Simeone's moved them on this season, this season's been a really interesting one, they, they struggled through the middle of the season when he was sort of searching for a method to break teams down that sit deep against them. You know, it's a big problem with a, a team that is a defensively based team. If you give them the ball and you put the impetus on them, they struggle to break you down. But what we saw at the weekend against Las Palmas was some excellent, excellent football. Uh, you know, they won 5-0. But what was more important was their shape and possession looked like a 2-3-5 in a way with both fullbacks nice and high. Koke almost dropping deep and becoming part of the central midfielders, uh, being a playmaker. And it's one of this it's really interesting modern role. You know, a player that starts on the left wing but moves inside to, to receive the ball and to dictate the play. You know, at left midfield, he completed 120 passes. That's 43 more than any other player on the pitch. There's some fantastic um, bits of play that sort of is Koke and is this next Atletico Madrid. The, the third goal was absolutely cracking. Basically, uh, Koke plays a one-off, one-two off Antoine Griezmann. But again, how I mentioned before, right, these flat passes that go direct to attackers... So what happens there is Koke plays this forward pass to Griezmann. Griezmann takes the attention of the defensive midfielder, draws it to the ball, bounces the pass off back to Koke, and Koke splits the ball in between the lines to Gaetan, who slides Gromero through and scores. It's just very interesting that Atletico are starting to play some really, really good modern football, very fluid football, and mm. Koke is, is probably the guy that's running the show there. He may have a score prediction than did. I'm uh, going to go 1-1. I think that... <sighs> It's going to be a scale of who has the ball, who doesn't have the ball. I think that's going to be a big, big one, whether Real sits off, whether Real score early and Atletico mm. have to have the impetus. But now with Atletico's performance, I've got confidence in them breaking this Real team down. If you go back to the final last season, Atletico did do very well, but didn't quite break them down um, and obviously went on to lose on penalties. So I'm going to go 1-1 one on, one, one in the first leg. I'm going to say 2-1 in the first leg to Real. Um, I expect Atletico to prevail in the second leg. So 2-1 in the first leg, what are you saying, Lawrence? Good question. I'm going to go. Uh, I'll probably agree. Actually, I'll go two one to Real Madrid in the first leg. Maybe even actually, maybe even three one. Ooh, Chris, what are you saying? Yeah, two one Madrid. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, the other potentially even more intriguing tie is, of course, Monaco against Juventus. Uh, attack versus defense. Chris, the highest scorers against team who've conceded the least in this competition. Juventus, the favourites according to the bookies. But how do you see it going, Chris? I'm inclined to agree with the bookies because I think, and I don't mean to disrespect Monaco, that their attacking price is very impressive. And I think they've actually given this tournament a really new sense of life and, and energy with the way they've played. And, and just some of the, the players in particular, Mbappe and the like, have, have approached this tournament. But I also feel like Juventus have the kind of smarts to, to stop them scoring. I think if, if Juventus hadn't got past Barcelona to get here I'd be more inclined and and more eager to to put my my money on on Monaco but because of of Juventus's I think experience and just wisdom when it comes to keeping teams out I think they'll 
they'll tire Monaco out um, and then take the win. Score prediction? Across two legs or just the first game? Just the first one. Uh, 2-0 Juventus. 2-0 Juventus. I'm going to go 2-1 to Monaco in this first leg. Um, what are you saying, Dave? Why, why do you say that? I just feel like Mbappe. He's Got getting, a feeling. Yeah, I've just, I'm feeling it in my cockles, as they say. Um, wow. <laughs> deep in my plums, as they say. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think, albeit Juventus having a fantastic defence, I think Monaco are going to score the goals at home. I expect Juventus to come through in the tie overall. But I think this is going to be a good performance from Monaco. I can feel it in my plums. Uh, Dave, what are you saying? Usually don't feel your plums, Adam, to make my score prediction. And this time it's not going to be any different. Um, Monaco averaged three goals a, se- a game this season. Juve probably one of the only teams that could stop them scoring three goals. But I kind of agree. I think they're going to score two goals. And it's going to be two goals to one uh, with Juventus yes. having that crucial away goal in the second leg. Feel it in those plums, Dave. Uh, Lawrence, what are you saying? I'm going to go for a 2-2, actually. Yeah. Where'd you get that from? Plums, the brain. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I, I know, I know. Obviously, that uh, Monaco are quite high scoring. Um, I, I'm struggling to see how they get the movement um, around that Juventus side. I mean, it's great having that movement. I'm just going to be really interested to see how they shut it down in the same way that they shut a lot of the movement and the flank movement from Barcelona down. Um, and that's why I think ultimately Juventus will prevail. I'm also hoping Juventus prevail because they've become my team in the Champions League oh, this yeah. season after seeing them perform in it. Uh, so let's see. I think they're going to win. I think they, they could well win the whole thing, even if they lose Hope the so. first leg. Um, guys, that is the podcast wrapped up. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back on Thursday, wrapping up those Champions League games and answering your questions as always. Remember to get in your reviews for Thursday. No reviews last week, so there is a pristine, beautiful box of Ferrero Rocher up for grabs. If you want it, all you have to do is rate and review the podcast. Click the link in the description. It is that simple. Until Thursday, oh Lawrence, where can the whole find you? Uh, go find me on the YouTube channel, The Front Three. Lovely. Uh, Dave, where can they all find you? Um, yeah, on to the Stat Monday football podcast, Monday to Friday. Exciting stuff. Lovely. This week. Because it's my birthday. Oh, Thursday. lovely. Thursday. Birthday, ah, birthday Thursday. podcast. That's lovely. the only work I'm doing that day. The rest of the day, I'm not doing anything. I love it. Sorry. As it should be. Um, Chris, where can they all find you? Uh, at K-H-E-N-E-A-G. Guys, go and check out the latest video on the Front 3 YouTube channel. Me and Dave answer. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com amazing to start your springtime adventure. Some of your questions and look out for that. Juventus Conte video dropping later in the week. Until Thursday, enjoy the Champions League. 